Let me start by doing something I keep on promising to do and failing to do, and that is to have a look at the uh, Karikar of uh, Godapada. I think that the reason why will become clear in a moment. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but uh, it does, to some extent, gear in with what Plotinus is talking about when it comes to the level of experience, not in the um, area of systematization at all uh, because Godapada, as I mentioned very early on was writing a textbook for people who were pursuing the development of spiritual awareness uh, in a systematic fashion but uh, if you have a knowledge of, Karik- of the Karakar the commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad that he did and you have knowledge of what he is saying, then it puts certain of the statements of Plotinus in a different light. It gives you a different context, and it brings out certain things which it will be very easy to slide over if you were unaware of this. So I shall spend, I hope, about five minutes uh, sketching out the sort of thing he did. Uh, His book was a textbook of Consciousness, basically, and like all the Indian masters, he produced it as a commentary on an established work, and then Shankara came along and produced a commentary on Gotapada. So that's the way he did it in, in India. It was showed reverence to the teacher, and um, you, you picked up in this way and brought out certain things in the text which other people might otherwise have missed. And um, <clears throat> he starts, therefore, from a very uh, practical point of view. He starts off with the ordinary states of consciousness, which are discussed in the Mandukya Upanishad, that's how he picked them up, and he takes the ordinary three states of consciousness that everybody is aware of, that is to say waking consciousness, the Vishwa state, uh, the Taijasa or dreaming state, and what he calls Prajna, deep sleep state. 
And he said, right, these three are states of constant shift and therefore, in that sense, constant illusion. But he adds to these a fourth state, which he calls Turiya. (coughs) And the Turiya state uh, is the one that transforms the others and is the cornerstone for spiritual growth. And this is how he describes it. They consider the fourth to be that which is not conscious of the internal world, nor conscious of the external world, nor conscious of both the worlds, nor a mass of consciousness, nor simple consciousness, nor unconsciousness, which is unseen, beyond empirical dealings, beyond the grasp of the organs of action, uninferable, unthinkable, indescribable, whose valid proof consists in the single knowledge of the self in which all phenomena cease, and which is unchanging, auspicious, and non-dual. That is the self, and that is to be known. I think that uh, immediately certain passages in Plotinus spring to mind. I'll return to those at the end of this (coughs) lecture. It runs according to plan. What plan? Um, uh, but you remember the passages at the end of 6-9 where he speaks about ascending to the knowledge of one remember the, the three levels which I have sketched out uh, in this usual sort of sketch map fashion um, if, if you have the one and you have below that the self-awareness arising and below that you have the space-time world in which we live well, remember that the, the levels of the functional, the nature of knowledge changes on these levels not because of the change in the object by itself, but because of the changes in the perceiver. You cannot perceive this level except as a concept from here unless you shift the nature of your consciousness, you shift your mind. And when it comes to the one or that which is beyond number, he said that uh, you have to attain a state of complete unity which, if you remember, he defined as not a numerical unit, uh, not a oneness in that sense, but something which transcends even that. And he described it as a form of unknowing because there were no two. There was no two. You weren't even united with the object as you are on this level. There was no object with which to unite, and there was nothing to unite to it. Well, this is um, the same kind of level, it seems to me, being described in a different way. And the other statements that um, Plotinus made, the statements about it being beyond language and so on, uh, are all of them echoed in that particular statement. And then the next thing is that uh, to experience Turiya is a kind of awakening. And this is what he says on that. When the individual, sleeping under the influence of beginningless maya, which is unreal reality, real unreality, the the world of appearances, is awakened 
And then he realizes the birthless, deathless, sleepless, dreamless, non-dual Turiya. Now that level of awakening is the the nature of realization. And Turiya established becomes, from the point of view of the relative levels of consciousness, permanent and all-pervading, which means that, again, one begins to approach certain of the things which were said by Plotinus. behavior that the mind has when it is under control free from all ideation beyond knowing objects in other words and full of discrimination should be particularly noted the behavior of the mind in deep sleep in prajna is different and is not similar to that of the controlled mind for that mind loses itself in, in sleep but does not lose itself when under control. That very mind becomes the fearless Brahman possessed of the light of consciousness all around. In other words, consciousness uh, remains even in deep sleep. And the, um, the, the next thing he said uh, recalls the passage on the brazen bull, the instrument of torture that I mentioned, where Plotinus said that anybody who was a realised, how you like to put it, um, fully developed human being in that level would certainly experience the pain and the suffering, but that there would also be together with that an awareness of the all good. In other words, there's a double level of awareness, the sort of thing that is being said there of Turiya in sleep. And uh, this is a rather more pleasant way of putting the same kind of point he who knows both these, namely the enjoyment that there is in the three states, waking, dreaming and sleeping, and that which is declared to be the enjoyer there does not become affected even while enjoying. He's out of the influence, not trapped by the enjoyment. And this is um, very akin to the claim that Plotinus made that somebody in that condition would be not be trapped by the torment. Uh, he also speaks, as Plotinus does, of rays of consciousness as giving rise to the mind, rays of the light of, of consciousness. And he um, speaks, as Plotinus does, of the created cosmos and the intellectual principle in the case of Plotinus as not being caused by the one. Remember he said if you can speak, speak of the one as causing it, but that is a misstatement. The cause, the, the one is beyond causation. It, as it were, radiates the cosmos of its own nature. And exactly the same point is made by um, Dodapada, that creation of, of the creation of nature is simply from the nature of the ultimate reality. And he makes a similar point on the cause 
uh, and he said, if you're, if you're going to speak in terms of cause and effect, in Plotinian terms, it will be down here. Cause is divided from effect. You've got two things here, and they are, they are linked, they are separate from one another. Uh, if you come onto this level, if you remember what Plotinus said, the cause is essence. It is the inner nature of something moving, as it were, outwards. So that cause and effect do not apply. It's a non-discursive level. And again, Godopadus says exactly the same thing, that the cause of these things is internal. And he said, in fact, that cause and effect originate together. And he said if you have the two horns of a cow, you can't one call the one the cause of the other. They both spring out of the cow. That is the kind of image he used for it. So he has much the same view on causation. And his final summary of the whole nature of his belief, now this goes rather further than Plotinus, but this is one of his statements. There is no dissolution, no origination, none in bondage, none striving or aspiring for salvation, and none liberated. This is the highest truth. Uh, in other words, the ultimate reality is the one that he stresses the maestic nature of these levels in a way in which Plotinus does not. Now, let me come... I, I, that's all I'm going to say about uh, Godopada. I don't think there's a lot of point in going into him because you really do need to be following his, his sort of path to make sense of what he's saying. And he's also involved in a good deal of controversy, by the way, with various other people who he thinks are expressing misleading formulations. Um, and I think it's irrelevant to, to go further, but I thought I would point out these parallels because they are interesting and also they bring out the sort of thing that you get, for instance, in that statement about the person inside the bull, which if you come from a purely Western tradition, you could very well miss. It's there in the text, but you could very well miss it uh, because it, you would glide over it. You wouldn't see it as having any particular significance. Now, let's go back to Plotinus, and I want to start off this time with life as play. And the, the first thing, I suppose, I ought to say is coming back to this business of cause and effect. Cause and effect, according to Plotinus, are a manner of speaking. They are not the ultimate truth. They are a formulation, a formulation which has its validity but is not ultimately an accurate account of things. Yet he is forced constantly to use it. That is the, the nature of the languages which we use, which function obviously in the area of relativity, where one thing is relative to another. They cannot function on this level, which is for obvious reasons beyond the play of language. And this is uh, Plotinus speaking in terms of what in the East would be known as karma. Of course, he never uses the term, but he, he has his own terms for it. But this is, this is him speaking about it. He's speaking here of cause and effect stretching from one lifetime to another. And he, said, he says this, Thus a man, once a ruler will be made a slave because he abused his power and because the fall is to his future good. Those that have misused money 
will be made poor, and to the good poverty is no hindrance. Those that have unjustly killed are killed in turn, unjustly as regards the murderer, but justly as regards the victim, and those that are to suffer are thrown into the path of those that administer the merited treatment. It is not an accident that makes a man a slave. No one is a prisoner by chance. Every bodily outrage has its due cause. The man once did what he now suffers. A man that murders his mother will become a woman and be murdered by a son. A man that wrongs a woman will become a woman to be wronged. Hence arises the awesome word Adrastaya, the inevitable retribution. For in very truth, this ordinance is an Adrastraya, a justice itself, and a wonderful wisdom. Now, he's, what he's putting out there is a very, very tough statement of this kind of doctrine. Uh, in some ways, mind-bogglingly tough. I mean, if you're going to take that kind of thing absolutely literally, it means every person that went into the uh, gas chambers in the prison camps caused their own presence there and their own suffering. It means that everything disastrous or pleasant that happens to people has been caused by themselves, that it is all self-caused. It's an ex extreme um, uh, sort of statement of this kind of thing, and in its extreme form, I think it can certainly to most Westerners be rather off-putting. But there are certain qualifications that he makes in the description of the nature of this kind of thing. So let me move on from that, and it's, it's part of this whole conception of life as play, to his version of life as play. He starts off with a problem which used to bother me, the consuming of one thing by another and killing of one thing by another. This devouring of kind by kind is necessary as the means to transmutation of living things which could not keep form forever, even though no other killed them. If dying is but changing a body as the actor changes a costume, an image which is used in the Bhagavad Gita, of course, or even an exit from the body, like the exit of the actor from the boards when he has no more to say or do, though he will still return to act on another occasion. What is there so very dreadful in this transformation of living beings into one another? Murders, death in all its guises, reduction and sacking of cities, all must be to us just such a spectacle as the changing scenes of a play. All is but the very incident of a plot, costume on and off, active grief and lament. For on earth, in all the succession of life, it is not the soul within, but the shadow outside of the authentic man that grieves and complains and acts out the plot on this world stage which men have dotted with stages of their own constructing. All this is the doing of man knowing no more than to live the lower and outer life, and never perceiving that in his weeping and in his graver doings alike, he is 
but at play. So you have this conception again, it's a conception which crops up in India, the whole notion of the cosmos as here as play. But the play there is both the senses of acting and the senses of like a child playing, which does, of course, involve quite a lot of acting, assumption of roles and one thing and another. Now, you cannot possibly make any humane sense of that without realising this possibility of a double level of consciousness. There is no way in which you can go through the most appalling things and remain in any way stable and unaffected by them unless there is an aspect of your own consciousness which is free of them. It doesn't rise free of them, it's never entangled with them. And one comes back to this Blakeian conception, which I mentioned earlier on, uh, where, for instance, Milton falls asleep from the celestial realms and wakes to move about on Earth. You have the human being having within him or her layer upon layer of awareness and some of them being asleep, and some of them being awake, and sometimes more than one being awake without necessarily the one being fully aware of the others. So that there is a layered effect in the mind. And the, um, the freedom that is, um, the peace that is claimed, is a peace which, quite literally, um, kind of passes beyond understanding. It's something which is gained on the inner level of consciousness and maintained from that level. And again, it's exactly in line with what Godapada is saying. I mean, you can see how close they are. And um, the, the implications of this are very considerable. First of all, um, the business of the freedom of the actor. According to Plotinus, human beings are essentially free even though they appear to be in bondage. Again, this is something that used to bother me. Um, there are passages like that in the Gita too, um, where you know, Krishna says, uh, how is it that a human being can seem compelled to do actions against his own will? And I used to think in terms of drink, you know, somebody whose hand automatically stretches out and grabs a glass even though they don't want to do it. And um, this kind of situation appears to be a situation of total compulsion. According to Plotinus, and I think we're going to say the same, uh, this is not ultimately the case, whatever the immediate appearance may be. And um, this is, he has the idea, this, this again is, this is something that links with early European Civilization. Remember the lines of Pope on Act Where Your Part, there all the honor lies. Do you know those lines? Where he says, It doesn't matter what you are, you could be a monk, you could be a king, that's quite unimportant. The role is not important, that's purely external. It's how it is played that is the important thing. Well, this is Plotinus on the same subject. As the actors of our stages get their masks and their costumes, robes of state or rags, so a soul is allotted its fortunes, and not at haphazard, but always under a reason. It adapts itself to the fortunes assigned to it, attunes itself, ranges itself rightly to the drama. Now, you see what, how he's interpreting what is going on. If you take the ordinary interpretation, you say, all right, people are conditioned by the circumstances in which they grow up, they're conditioned by their culture, uh, by their condition, by their upbringing, by the way their parents treat them, things of this kind. 
uh, according to Plotinus, this um, would be an unacceptable frame of reference. It would need supplementing by something else. He would say, you are born into a particular role, I'll come back to his account of reasons why, uh, for a reason. In that situation, you begin to attune to the situation you're in. So this, this um, apparent conditioning, well, it's, it's an actual conditioning from one point of view, uh, is a form of attunement. It's a form of um, blending in the situation that you can act within it. So it adapts itself to the fortunes assigned to it, attunes itself, ranges itself rightly to the drama, to the whole principle of the piece. Then it speaks out its business, exhibiting at the same time all that a soul can express of its own quality as a singer in a song. A boy, a voice, a bearing, naturally fine or vulgar, may increase the charm of a piece. On the other hand, an actor with his ugly voice may make a sorry exhibition of himself, yet the drama stands as good a work as ever. The dramatist, taking the action which a sound criticism suggests, disgraces one, taking his part from him, with perfect justice. Another man he promotes to more serious roles or to any more important play he may have, while the first is cast for whatever minor work there may be. In other words, there is a progress or regress from life to life, <coughs> according not to the role, not to the external, but according to the excellence of the soul manifested in the playing of the role, which is a different concept. It's something that comes from inside, not something which is forced on you from outside, um, which is, again, so many things in Plotinus are diametrically opposed to the way of looking at these things. Now, and he sees the actors as intrinsically and inalienably responsible for what they do. Again, this is very much against the way of looking at things now. Now you say, all right, he was dropped on his head as a baby at three, therefore he can't help himself, or he's brought up in deprived conditions, therefore he can't help himself, and so on and so forth. And I mean, statistically, these patterns work. You can, you can produce a cause and effect theory which works statistically. It's a way of dealing with certain things within a certain frame of reference. Uh, but there are always the exceptions. There are the people who are brought up in deprived circumstances and become saints. It is not necessary to go that way. There, is, there, is, there are other factors involved in this. There is a choice involved in it. And it's a, an element which is now completely toned down, except in a very, very crude way, and um, this again is Plotinus on this, this particular area. If man were all of one piece, I mean, if he were nothing more than a made thing, acting and acted upon according to a fixed nature, he could be no more subject to reproach and punishment than the mere animals. Now that is the view of human beings that is the dominant view now, just a main thing. But as the scheme holds, man is singled out for condemnation when he does evil, and this with justice, for he is no mere thing made to rigid plan. His nature contains a principle, a part and free. In other words, 
there is a, an apparent contradiction here. What Plotinus is clearly saying is that within the human being, there is this principle that is apart and free. In other words, there is, there is that which is beyond number, infinitude. That is the only thing which is freedom, and it is the only thing which is apart. All other things are relative and therefore not apart. So um, that is the principle that he is referring to. And he says that human beings have this principle, but he has said elsewhere, and I quoted him saying this already, that the whole of the manifest cosmos has that principle within it. Everything, trees, animals, flowers, rocks, everything has got that within it, as it were, using a spatial metaphor. So he cannot mean that the actual presence of this is the thing which distinguishes the human being. He can only mean that the ability to merge consciousness with it, to become it, by entering, as he put it, a state in which one will find that self no longer, that is peculiar to human beings. And it is that, apparently, to his way of thinking, which makes human beings responsible in a way in which other levels of creation, other beings in the cosmic play, are not responsible for their actions. So he has that as a, a strong element of, in his whole concept of responsibility. And he goes on to speak of a double providence. Uh, am I overwhelming you with quotations? Are you all right with this? Can you keep up with them? Can we have that quotation on the act, the act thing you were putting about the actor? Uh, now, which one? The, uh, the one you, you were talking about, the original one about the act thing. That is, I think that's a few pages earlier. Wait a minute, I better look up the reference. That's the best thing to do. Um, the base. Yeah, all right, wait till the end. I'll, I'll look it up. But it, it's all in 3 3. That's the one which has got. Not all of these, there are some references to the uh, the cosmos as God's drama, uh, which uh, occur in one of the much later areas. But most of these are actually from 3 3. He's, he's talking about this sort of thing there. Um, Yeah, he, he goes on to speak about a double providence. Now, you remember, again, I quoted him earlier, saying that there was, no, in a way, no such thing as providence. The providence was a way of speaking. The providence, you usually, you say something is providential if it happens as if according to a plan with a design to it. And that this kind of concept applies to discursivity, it applies to a world of before and after, where everything is separate from everything else. But if the ultimate universe is not like that, it is not discursive and things are not divided off from one another, but each contains all, then that can only be a mode of speaking. It doesn't make it invalid. I mean, this is, it's not a question of being either right or wrong, but it's a mode of speaking. It works up to a point in certain circumstances. It doesn't work all the time. It doesn't work always. Um, so he now comes... Um, on to the question of providence uh, again this is the same uh, Ennead and he continues from this last quotation of the, the principle that gives freedom to human beings and bestows the dubious gift of responsibility upon them this does not however stand outside of providence or of the reason of the all 
the overworld cannot be cut off from the world of sense. The higher, this the, the intellectual principle, shines down upon the lower, and this illumination is providence in its highest aspect. The reason principle, the logos of the lower world, has two phases. One which creates the things of process, that's the lower one which leads to the production of nature, and another which links them with the higher beings. The beings are the ideas that are intelligences in the intellectual principle. So this, the, the world soul has got the logistic uh, aspect which leads to the production of nature as process. And it's got the contemplative aspect. Remember, I went into this uh, in one of the previous lectures, last week, I think it was. It's got the contemplative aspect which looks to its own source, which looks upwards, if you like to use these spatial terms, to the intellectual principle. Is, is that clear? And it looks to the intelligences within this, which is quite an interesting point. Somebody was talking about this in the seminar um, in connection with something completely different. The reasoning principle has two phases, one which creates the things of process and another which links them with the higher beings. These higher beings constitute the over-providence on which depends the lower providence, which is the secondary reason principle inseparably united with its primal. The two, the major and minor providence acting together, produce the universal wolf the one all-comprehensive providence. In other words, there is the, the, um, the cause of what appears to be planned providence in process is in fact a link to an eternal world with internal, eternal intelligences that are not of process. So what appears to be a temporal progression on one level is not on another. And... Uh, this links up with the whole business of responsibility. A human being's responsibility is to realise his or her nature as the one. That is human responsibility in its fullest. If a human being does not move inwards, however you like to put it, spatial metaphor, inwards towards that level, then the potentiality of human life is being wasted. If that is not wasted, then responsibility in action, in the ordinary sense, grows. And people get known as responsible. Without that, there is both a denial of responsibility on this level and an irresponsibility on a much more profound level. So the, the deciding factor in all this is where the centre of awareness is going. Jakob Burma put this kind of thing very strongly in Christian terms, and he said that the, a Christian was made a Christian by the direction of the will and the imagination towards the divine centre of his own being. And that he defined as faith. And somebody who did that, he said, was a Christian, and somebody who didn't, he said, was not and he said it was not a matter of belief, it's not a matter of acceptance of teams, which are external things. Again, very different from many of the formulations of religion that are around today, but uh, that is what he said. By the way, I forgot to bring those copies of Burma along. I'll, for those who wanted them, I'll try to bring them next week or to the seminar tomorrow for those who go to that. 
So the, the freedom, the whole question of freedom and the double providence tying together. And they are at the core of human nature, as, as Plotinus sees it. And at the core also of this whole business of the cosmos's play. Because you can only begin to play with the cosmos as a play if you are free from it. You go back into I mean, parallels and things like acting theory and whatnot, which many of you will know more than I do, but I mean, you've got the same sort of controversy there. Do you identify yourself with the role or do you remain outside it? And the answer is both. Both. You can't work it otherwise. Um, and the, the logos of nature is something which on its own level becomes discursive, discursive it's discursivity and it's also harmony but it is not quite harmony as normally conceived of a drama. Uh, again, this is uh, Plotinus on the subject. You get sick of these quotations, let me know. They are rather long, but they, some of them have got quite a lot of points in them, and I want to try and bring them out. And I also know from bitter experience that unless you actually cite the person you're talking about, people say you never said it. Uh, and you are know, enough of that kind of nonsense. You have to protect yourself against Bludgeoning uh, the intellectual world. Did you put the location? Sorry? Did you put the location of the book? Uh, of, of which one? The one you were going to do. Oh, yes, this is it's from 3 2. Uh, 3 2, section or chapter 16. But this reason principle, which emanates from the complete unity, divine mind, and the complete unity, life or world soul, is neither a uniate complete life, nor a uniate complete divine mind, nor does it give itself whole and all-including to its subject. In other words, you remember the unity here is all-inclusive. Each concludes, includes the whole and all conclude each, so that there is no division. Here you are getting something discursive and therefore, therefore more aggregative, a building up of unity from parts, by an imperfect communication, it sets up a conflict of part against part. That's this level here. This is where you get the conflict, not there, but down here. Um, it sets up a conflict of part against part. It produces imperfect things and so engenders and maintains war and attack. And thus its unity can be that only of a sum total, not of a thing undivided. At war with itself, in the parts which it now ex exhibits, it has the unity or harmony of a drama torn with struggle. The drama, of course, that is to say a play, an actual theatrical performance, the drama, of course, brings the conflicting elements to one final harmony, weaving the entire story of the clashing characters into one thing, while in the Logos, the conflict of the divergent elements arises within the one element, the reason principle. The comparison, therefore, is rather with a harmony emerging directly from the conflicting elements themselves, and the question becomes what introduces clashing elements among these reason principles. Now, I'll return to that um, last question in a moment, but you get the distinction. You see what he's saying. If you have a drama, 
uh, as in the, the ordinary Western model. You've got that to Aristotle. A drama's got a beginning and a middle and an end, according to Aristotle. If you look for the end, he defines these things in a very sort of pragmatic kind of way. He said it is that which naturally has something which precedes it and naturally does not have anything which succeeds it. Fine. In other words, an end is an end. But uh, you see what he means. There is a closure. It's, there is a conclusion. There is some sort of tying up. And this is what traditionally we looked at, or looked for in the drama. And it's no, no longer true in a lot of modern drama, uh, where there is not quite a closure, but there, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't go, I've had this argument, oh, uh, I've just written this book on literature and spirituality in theatre and so on, with a friend of mine, Ralph, and uh, he sort of pushed this line, and I was saying, oh, look, steady, 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 it's not quite like that, because uh, even if you get a work which ends without a conventional, traditional closure, you get some equivalent. And I think this is natural to the human mind, and I think it's natural for the reasons which I mentioned in one of these earlier lectures. Remember the business of hearing a tune, the way in which you make a tune up as an abstract pattern. Well, we, we perceive things by abstract patterning, and you need something, not a closure, an opener, but you need some sort of um, rounding of the thing so that it is graspable as an abstract pattern. Otherwise, it's not no longer even a work of literature, it just disintegrates into bric a brac. Oh, yeah, well, never mind. Leave that one aside. It's got an unfortunate word with the critical theory in the background. But you, you see what I mean? So that, in fact, the denial of closure is often an alternative version of closure. And I think that this is very, very natural. Um, yeah? Is it something to do with the way society is that determines the way things end like that? I mean, they think once upon a time they would have expected things to end in a very orderly manner. Whereas today, the way life is, you know, the, the, the cadence at the end is always a bit sort of non conclusive Well, it was always pretty much like that. I mean, think of the soldiers of Charles XII who went off and either died in Russia or disappeared in Russia and never came back, and that kind of thing, you know, it was always messy. And there was great pomp of death, but uh, the dying was not, not quite like that. And uh, there's also always, all in, in these things, I know Lionel Watson's one of the people who points this out, but he wrote a book on death, and he pointed out fairly obvious things, but, you know, one, what have I done with a chalk? I've lost it all already. Um, you, you get uh, an attempt in, in this sort of thing to, to pinpoint a division, to make a dividing line between life and death. On the table, is it? It comes being as blind as a bat. Yeah, you, you get your life going along, and then it's announced somebody is dead. And at that point, you then go into a sort of, whatever it may be, some kind of ritual conclusion, and it all looks very neat. But in fact, people don't quite die like that. They die bit by bit. I mean, you know, they a dead man's beard continues to grow for four days. And anyway, if you have people dying, you will find that they are very much on this level, usually, at least up until the time of the funeral. They hang around, you can, you can sense them, you can communicate with them, and so on. Um, and it's only later that they move on to other levels. It's a gradual process. And the same with birth. I mean, when you're going to declare a baby born, it get, you get to the point, the sort of thing that um, Sturm 
uh, satirized when he, dis- he went into what was actually a theological uh, discussion, a great controversy about whether or when you could baptize a child. Well, you could only baptize a child when it was supposed to be born, and did that mean his head had to be in this world, and supposing it was a breach of birth, and so on. And eventually, they, they came to the conclusion that you could baptize a child in the womb, provided you had a squirt. Well, <laughs> 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 oh, there you are, you've got the, you've got the meat division broken down, and, and that is the nature of life. We come along with our meat things and say, not here, not there, this is dividing them. There is no dividing line, it's rubbish, it doesn't exist. But it's very convenient to manage it as if it did. And that is, that is the, the real point of the thing. Anyway, how on we get sidetracked onto all this? Um, so the, um, the, the, the harmony that you've got in a play is a harmony of resolution, it's a linear harmony. You have all these various conflicting bits, and somewhere along the line they all come back together and all tie up. And that's your conclusion. And that's your end. And that is a temporal discursive end. According to Plotinus, and I think this is important, the harmony that exists in life isn't like that. It's not a harmony of things moving to a conclusion. It is a harmony of a wholeness moving out into partiality. So it's on a different level. If you wish to find the harmony in things, get off the level of conflict. There are other levels where the conflict is not fundamental. Shift onto those levels, and there the harmony will be found. I think this is the general drift of this idea, and it's um, it's quite important. I think to get a grip on that because he lives or, and, and writes of a non-discursive cosmos, except on the on the on the outer levels. And then the the next thing was the. Um, the answer to this last question in the, in the previous quotation, uh, which is the why is it that you get all these conflicts? And uh, his statement is Can you stand another quotation? It's, uh, it's all right, sure. Um, the nature of the, this is the 3217. Uh, the nature of the reason principle is adequately expressed in its act. And therefore, the wider its extension, the nearer will its production approach to full contrariety. Hence, the world of sense is a lesser unity than is its reason principle. Ears, which are potentially plural, on that level they are unity. The completion of this is that going out, where they become manifest or mirrored in things which are separate which are at variance with one another. And contrariety is the extreme of that. So contrariety is the opposite extreme of that. And uh, this is just another aspect of that in a way, if you... I hesitate to use that language, but there are... I think that that is correct if you take it with a... a, a, not too literally. Okay? Um, So it moves moves out into into... contrariety, and each one feeling itself separate yearns for unity. It's the old human desire for love or what have you. I mean, in our society, it's absolutely swamped by contrariety and differentiation. We are all pursuing our own individual well-being at the expense, if necessary, of the entire world. 
And never ever in the whole of human history, I should think, has there been so much confounded clap-chat about love. I mean, the whole, you hear about all the time, love, 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 it's sickening. Um, and and uh, it goes from religion to pop songs and to, to sex and all the rest of it. Um, anyway, this, this is what, how, how he goes on. But desire, this desire for unity, desire often destroys the desired. It's been to sound like Oscar Wilde, isn't it? It seeks its own good. And if the desired object is perishable, the ruin follows. And the partial thing, a human being, for example, straining towards its completing principle, draws towards itself all it possibly can. In other words, the search for unity, if it doesn't go in this direction, goes in this direction. You get the, the drawing in, the possessing of everything. In other words, it becomes egoic, okay? So if you don't get responsibility by moving onto the level of freedom, you get irresponsibility by control, government, growth, building up of bigger and bigger whatever it is that you're involved in. Thus, with the good, the search for unity in itself being a good, we have the bad. We have the opposed movements of a dancer guided by one artistic plan. We recognise in his steps the good as against the bad, and see that in the opposition lies the merit of the design. But thus the wicked disappear? No, their wickedness remains. Simply, their role is not of their own planning. But surely this excuses them. No, excuse lies with the reason principle, and the reason principle does not excuse them. You come back to this notion that you have freedom. You can go in any direction you want. It's entirely up to you. You, are, you can go anywhere you like. This is the sort of thing that existentialism said, but it's on a much my way of thinking much higher level. We are in uh, existentialism. No bad faith in all this stuff in existentialism, but you know, that's the basic notion to our free. I mean, why don't you just suddenly get your feet and step the person in the very hungry? But of course nowadays they do, they've discovered that kind of That's not genuine freedom. But there is nothing to stop you doing all sorts of things that you feel yourself stopped from doing. There is nothing to stop you. And if you, if you really begin to get this, this level, when you get to the point where somebody put it by saying, um, when you no longer do what you like, you can do what you want. That's the way of putting it. Freedom lies from this level outwards. It does not lie on the outer level. Only to pursue it on the outer level alone is just illusion, according to Plotinus. And you can see how this, what bearing this has got on things like ethics and so on. And it brings into the whole question of ethics something which is there in, say, the analysis of the Beatles, which is not usually there in the, in the West, except in a rather attenuated form of the purification of the motive. That is to say, an essential part of ethics is the level of consciousness of the actor and the relationship between actor and action. That is essential to ethics. Without that, you have no ethical system. Just sit down and say, do this, don't do that, this is right, this is wrong, action. No. It's kind of a Somebody wanted to come in and say that. I think it's 
asked, what occurs to us to be asked is particularly good at the time. Yeah. Words, the reality that presents itself to us, consciously yeah. unconsciously, we choose our good yeah. within that um, framework. So, if you don't like that God presents the framework to us, yeah. whether it's Krishna or then, then he can in essence determine what our free will will choose. Yes, except that you can understand Krishna or Christ or any of these people on many different levels. Yes. But nevertheless, I think with, with, with the... Don't, don't put the blame on God. Whoever does determine uh, what our subjective good appears for us to be, we, we are limited now. In fact, we will always yes. choose within that framework. Yes, I think... If we alter the framework, then you... you as a propagandist, you can alter the framework. You know, yes, but that's only working on this level. Exactly, but if you can get onto this level, the framework disappears. <laughs> Then you can come back to it, and you don't necessarily even have to get rid of it, you can use it. Yeah. But you're not necessarily trapped in it. It's a different sort of way of looking at this thing, but you're right in the, in the, in the way in which the framework does sort of govern the, the way in which you pursue the desired thing down here on this kind of egoic level. Um, and I got to the end of that. Yes, you'll be glad to know. And uh, from this you get a kind of harmony of the soul and cyclicity. How's the time going? Uh, where are we now? One, five, seven, that's nine years. Um, all things, says Protinus, as they rise from a unity, come back to unity by a sheer need of nature. Differences unfold themselves, contraries are produced but all is drawn into one organised system by the unity at the source. And the, the, the influential thing is not, the, again, the, the temporal progression. It's not that kind of unity. It's the unity at the source, which is equally present there as there or anywhere else along that line. So it's the unity at the source, which is the key to this thing. And the source is not temporal. It's atemporal. It's the point where time comes into being, not the point at the, uh, where something begins. Um, and the... I'm going to dry up with the quotations. I got fed up with them myself by this point, so I shall just shift on to more or less drawing, drawing for the, the last part of this. But Thomas also describes... And that last quotation was from 3.3, the opening, 3.3.1... The Plotinus uh, also describes the world soul as dance drama. That is in 4.4.33, pages 3.20 to 3.21 here. I won't quote it from you, for you. But the dance drama he reserves to the celestial levels on this level, which are moving in a dance around this level. So it's a higher form of, of drama, but the same kind of idea. Now, in connection with this, I want to return to the business of myth. I'm not going to dwell on this, but uh, this is one of the statements. A myth is another way of trying to get at this. And the whole, his concept of drama, as I said, is not something which proceeds just along there, but something which proceeds out. And you come back to this whole way in which the mind works, the way in which it grasps things as a whole. Uh, a myth is another means of doing that according to Protonus. And this is what he says about this. He, he picks up one particular myth and then discusses it in these terms. The intellectual principle possesses itself to satiety, 
but there is no drunken abandonment in this possession which brings nothing alien to it. In other words, on this level, self-awareness is aware of itself. So there, there is nothing alien outside it. It's all is unity. But the reason principle, logos, this level, as its offspring, a later hypostasis, is already a separate being and established in another realm, and so is said to lie in the garden of this Zeus who is the divine mind. And this lying in the garden takes place at the moment when, in our way of speaking, Aphrodite enters the realm of being. I brought this in for you because of the birth of Aphrodite. Um, our way of speaking for myths, if they are to serve their purpose, must necessarily import time distinctions into their subject and will often present as separate powers which exist in unity but differ in rank and faculty. And does not philosophy itself relate the births of the unbegotten and discriminate where all is one substance. The truth is conveyed in the only manner possible. It is left to our good sense to bring all together again. Which is a very important statement and a different conception of myth from any of the statements that you have in the modern systems of thought, which have done much to bring myth back into good repute. When you take, you take Freud and you take Jung, you have either the link between the unconscious um, or, or the subconscious and the conscious mind, and in both cases, uh, the, these tend to be temporarily built up and are essentially unconscious. For Plotinus, this was not so. Uh, myth was not a temporal thing in essence. It was temporal in expression, but its essence was atemporal, and it was not unconscious, it was not a link between the unconscious and the conscious. It was a link between the fully conscious and our world in which we are all half asleep. So it's a very different kind of concept of myth. And the myth is there a link to truth. The myth holds, it grips, because it has this resonance. And, I mean, this is how, how Plato uses the myth, it, uh, it, it does, it works, it works, I tried it. And here I think I told, I think, I don't think I'm repeating myself in the lecture, I get muddled as to what happened where, but I think I did retail this at one point to the seminar, but I, I was dragged back to Sweden at one point because they had just thrown the universities on the arts side, they didn't do it for medicine, I noticed, but on the arts side they suddenly allowed completely free access to anybody who wanted to come, and they decided they were going to throw them off, maybe the first year I had no good. So the intake for the University of Uppsala, which is the oldest, I think, university in Sweden, that's very well established, or ancient European university, um, the intake to the English department there suddenly went up by 1,000% in a year. And uh, all these people were completely baffled in what to do, so they thought, call him Mannequin. <laughs> He's fool enough to do anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I did go back, I had a way at a time, I talked to them about Hamlet of opposition from faculty, and I said, no, I have to do it, I have to do it. And uh, it was the 12th night, oh my God, great halls full of these sort of 
slightly yobby people all dressed in crusado sacks and having political views somewhere to the left of Mount St. Tung. And um, I, I, I don't know if you talk about Twelfth uh, Night, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, whereas Hamlet is an absolute gift. I mean, you're always something going on, ghosts popping backwards and forwards across the stage, dead bodies dropping out of the curtain. <laughs> you can't keep people happy with Hamlet. You can't keep them happy at all. So it's an absolute gift. So I did Hamlet. And uh, that, that went very well. I just explained how it worked as a play. And they, they, had, a, they had a way of time with that. Um, and then I also managed to enable Plato into all this, on the grounds that Plato was an absolutely central part of English literature, which in a way I think is true. And I thought, okay, I want them to understand Plato, what am I going to do? Well, it's no use getting up there and going through the arguments and the dialogues in some abstract way. It wouldn't work. And they had these great halls full of hordes of people. So I thought, well, I should better use the techniques that Plato used. So I used myths. And I just explained what the myth of the cave was in the Republic. And it was very interesting, I always remembered it, because in the middle of this explanation, I suddenly found that there was this great hall of violently influenced people who disagreed with everything that Plato was saying. They were completely silent. They were absolutely wrapped with this. It was speaking to them. It ought not to have done. They should have rejected it out of hand, but it spoke to them. Because, rather, as Eliot said on the subject of poetry, you know, you don't speak to people's reason, you want to get round it, so you throw a sock to them, like a sock to service, to shut their meddling reason up, while you have a chance to get at them, round behind it. And, and, and it works, it does work. It, these stories go on. Why do they go on? They go on because they have this kind of resonance. And they are interpreted and reinterpreted every now and then in terms of the framework which is available at the time, you know, or Freudian or anything else. And uh, nevertheless, they survive. They survive these frameworks too. I've only got to think of what Milton did to some of the ancient myths. Remember how fascinated he was by them, how he retailed them in the paradise lost stage of his development, and thus stopped short and said, Thus they relate early. Or he fell long before, and so on, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, it, uh, acceptance and rejection, getting it both ways. So this principle of myth is very important, but it only works, it only can work, if Plotinus is right about the model of the mind. Otherwise, there is nothing to resonate. If you exist purely as a temporal mind, moving forwards in time and space, there is no place for the Platonic understanding of myth or the Cotillian understanding of myth, it imposes or implies a completely different model of the mind from the one which is now accepted. And then, uh, here... Uh, where was the, the quote from the Eastern Army? The one on myth. On, on myth, yes. Uh, it's from 359, page 185 to 186. And then I said I was going to talk about art this time. It's usually I left this till very late. And I, I don't know, I've been through this quite a lot with the seminar, and I don't know what some people are here from those. I don't want to bore and stiff by going through it all again. But art for Plotinus serves a similar purpose. Again, it has its temporal aspect, it has the aspect of discussion of patterns of events and things of this kind, the sort of thing that has been there in the Western tradition, especially since Aristotle onwards, right the way through, it's come back again and again. But um, from Plotinus's point of view, 
It also has this vertical dimension, and it is a means of drawing the mind towards the inner levels. And uh, he, um, Plotinus, I was trying to track down the quotation, I thought it was in 1.6, but I couldn't seem to put my finger on it this afternoon. But uh, he speaks of the artist as somebody who is easily moved to beauty. Can't stand the dull abstractions of philosophy, easily moved to beauty, therefore beauty is used to draw such a one onwards until he experiences beauty itself and then goes beyond to the ultimate one and leaves even beauty behind. And art is a means of integrating uh, the individual, not by integrating on this level, but by integrating on the vertical level, taking the external level back to the level of the intellectual principle and taking the intellectual principle back towards the level of the one. And that essentially is the spiritual function of art, according to Plotinus, and I would agree with him, that seems to me um, how it does work. And uh, the artist has to sort of form the other side of this, according to, to Plotinus. When creating, uh, all this is well, it's put in 1.6 and above all in 5.8, and I don't want to, as I said, to repeat too much of this quite endlessly, but the, the artist uh, in creating for instance, one instance he takes is a stock instance in the classical civilization. It's the Phidias, uh, the, the Zeus of Phidias. He takes this statue of Zeus by Phidias, which is no longer there, and said that um, when Phidias created the Zeus, he did not create the Zeus after the model of anything of sense. Instead, he went back to the the level of the wisdom that is in nature, or the wisdom of nature that was in himself. And from that level, he created the appearance or form that Zeus would have if Zeus chose to manifest himself to sight. So what you've got is an alternative to one of the two um, principles of... Uh, um, what's the word I want? The principles of um, aesthetics in Plato. Everybody says there's only one, but there are, in fact there are two theories inherent in Plato. And one of them is that the artist comes along and, say, paints a bed which is found down here, uh, and this bed is itself a copy of something which exists on some inner level. And so the artist copies a copy of reality and is real only at uh, two removes. And Plotinus says, no, not so. The artist, in creating, doesn't copy the external world. The artist goes back to the cosmic level of divine intelligence in his own mind or her own mind creates out of that and it's from that level that the, the work of art comes and as it has that level it has a unity of a different kind from a, the aggregative unity of the purely external level the, the whole is contained by all the parts he said it's not a unity of details coordinated into one pattern but it is a unity working itself out into detail. So every detail contains the whole. This is something one feels very much about so many works of art. A line or a fragment of a statue or something of this kind in some sense contains the, the whole. I can sense it there. Um, and this is the essential principle for the organisation of a work of art. And it's essential because without that it couldn't have the effect on a tuned observer which Plotinus sees as essential to the work. That is to say, the work speaking out of unity draws the perceiver back into unity.
coming from this level, which is based upon this, it draws the individual that perceives it back towards that level of unity in his or her own mind. And in that sense, it is integrative. But it is not integrative in the sense of coordinating various disparate factors on the external and temporal level. That is not its essential function. It may have that effect, but that is not its essential function. Now, that is art as Plotinus sees it. He doesn't discuss bad art, as far as I can recall, anyway. But obviously, it implies that there is, there is bad as well as good art. And the, in, in that sense, the artist is not responsible for the work. And the artist is a channel for the work. The best thing the artist can do is to get out of the way, having developed all the skills, we learn how to do it, get out of the way, let the thing speak. That is how it should be. And indeed, that goes with any kind of decent work, it seems to me. Um, and so one goes back towards the unity. And that unity, I quoted these passages to you before, but that unity is it's expressed again and again by Plotinus, but one of the places is at the end of the Ennead, which Porphyry put at the end of the whole collection, uh, when he, um, at the end of 6-9, when he's speaking about the ascent to the one. The man formed by this mingling of the supreme must, if he only remember, carry his image impressed upon him. He is becoming the unity, nothing within him or without inducing any diversity. No movement now, no passion, no outlooking desire once this ascent is achieved. Reasoning is in abeyance, and all intellection even, the perception of this level, the intellection, and all intellection, and even to bear the word to the very self. Caught away, filled with God, he has imperfect stillness, attained isolation. All the being calmed, he turns neither to this side nor to that, not even inwards to himself. Utterly resting, he has become very rest. He belongs no longer to the order of the beautiful. He has risen beyond beauty. Um, and then he goes on later to give a further analysis. This, there indeed, it was scarcely a vision, unless of a mode unknown. It was a going forth from the self, a simplifying a renunciation, a reach towards contact, and at the same time a repose, a meditation towards adjustment. This is the only seeing of what lies within the holies. To look otherwise is to fail. And that is the life of gods and godlike men. And that is the ultimate, I suppose, if it works, achievement of a work of art from your participants or perceivers' point of view. And you notice that, of course, you notice it. When a great theatrical performance has taken place, you don't get all this stopping, cheering, clapping, <coughs> waving, and so on that goes on. Really, performance leaves the entire theatre still. Always, always goes back to still. Now, I, everybody seems to think I'm, I'm finished this week. I don't know whether there's an assassination or something. <laughs> but I am scheduled to appear once more. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but it will be the final one next week. So I've, I've, next lecture, I want to come back to what I've been promising all along. I've emphasised again and again the differences of the modes of knowledge in these different levels. I want to come back to that and finally bring this to bear on the whole question of epistemology, how we know what we think we know, and how this relates to and provides an alternative to and a critique of a lot of modern thinking. And uh, this is terribly important because it's no use just sort of isolating yourself from the world around you, pretending it doesn't exist and hoping it will go away. It won't. And besides, there's a lot of good in it. And Protinus is quite useful as sort of opening up and maybe we to get new angles on them, you see. Yeah. On, on that subject, could you just um, uh, go back? You, you, you said that the question of responsibility in the, this plane, clearly, if you so choose it and you move sideways, you become responsible. Should you shift, if your point of centre shifts, so to speak, and you go to the other world, it rather suggests as if you don't become responsible in this one, in that sense, well, I, according to, um, if, I, if I've understood your question correctly, I may not have done. If I hadn't, would you stop me and you know, um, have another go at me and see if I can get it straight? But uh, according to Plotinus, you can move in either direction. It is perfectly possible to go in one or the other. Uh, and he does, of course, have the idea of reincarnation. What have I done with the chalk now? lost it again. Um, he does have the idea of reincarnation very strongly, which he takes, takes for granted. It seems to cause less difficulty in other areas. Less difficulty, actually, than the idea of some sort of karma or adrastaya or whatever you want to call it. But if you look at... Can I start with the business of the nature of life and the, the incarnation and that sort of stuff? I meant to introduce this and forgot, but if you take human life, birth to death, as we know it, that, that is what everybody knows. People are born and people die. Now, if you look beyond that, there are roughly, in general terms, four ways, it seems to me, logically, of conceiving this, with a lot of variations on them. One is to say, that's it. That's all there is. Which, uh, and you know people are born, you don't know what, if anything, happened before, whether there was any precedent existence, and the people who say that can't know anything about what happens afterwards. So, in fact, they assume that what they perceive in, on this level of life is the lot. And that is an assumption. Of course, it's not proven, but it's an assumption. And it makes a certain sense. If you wish to say, that's where I'm starting from, OK, that, at least it, it's coherent. The second form of uh, taking this is to say, right... You start here, this is a form which has become established, I think, as the sort of orthodoxy one in Christianity, though it wasn't by any means the only one earlier on. Um, and you then proceed on to what they call eternity, by which they usually seem to mean time going on forever. It's a horrific thought. But anyway, that's, that's how they take it. And they assume that there's nothing before, and they assume there's something after. And again, maybe they know that there is something after in some cases, but very often they don't. So you've made a different assumption, at least about this. A third lot, which I don't know anybody come up with, 
Why, I don't know, it's perfectly logically possible, is, of course, the, the opposite of that. You come from preceding existence of some kind until you die, and that's it. Why not? If you can proceed to infinity forwards, why can't you proceed to infinity backwards? Now, if you do that, that that's where you finish up. You, you die, and that's the end of it. Uh, in which case, you have these, the kind of diametrically opposite version of, of this this version, and then the last one, and you're making assumptions about this preceding period of which you know nothing, and the succeeding period of which you know nothing. Um, so the same sort of assumptions are being made as are being made by a person with this life, except that at least this bit they do know about. Whereas this bit, this person, well, in, in, in fact both, I mean, it just depends on what kind of assumptions you choose to make. And then the, the, the fourth one is some kind of... Um, Life leading to possibly with intervening stages to life to to life. I mean, going on, and that can take many forms. I mean, it could be incarnation to animals. It can be incarnation as a human being. It can be incarnation on different levels in different worlds. In heaven knows what, but you could have many different forms of it. But you have some form of reincarnation. And uh, in this case, you are making, if you have, if that's the only bit you know, you are again making assumptions about what went before. Assumptions about what came after. Now, in many cases, people have, in fact, got experience of one or other of those, sometimes both. Uh, I found with my own children that I knew them. Some of them, anyway, I recognised them. I was there, and one of them was born, and the immediate response was, I'm so glad to see you recognised him. And um, the, the post-mortem state is fairly familiar. And I, I've taken people, dying people, through it, and I've been aware of people who were dead um, uh, in the immediate uh, successive period of life. And, um, and you, I haven't said that. I'm not a spiritualist or something like that. Nothing to do with that. But um, you don't need all that. I mean, you could... Um, a, a different world is just a different state of mind. And you can shift on to anyone you never want to. It's perfectly simple. I could do it now if I wanted to. But I wouldn't dream of doing it with people who finally got off this very painful level because why should you disturb them? You have no right to. And there's no need to anyway. But everybody is present to everybody else all the time. There is no it's complete bonus, this separation business. But uh, this is my way of looking at things. So I, I, to me, reincarnation does seem obvious. On the other hand, I can see apps. I don't know why people get so hot under the collar about it. They get very angry if you disagree with them on this one. Uh, there's no real reason why. I mean, what difference does it make to you if you believe in reincarnation or not? It just seems to me the most reasonable of the various hypotheses. But so what? I mean, you would, I remember some, somebody who asked me, etc., an Indian teacher or other, I, I, I read this in some book, that you know, it would be marvellous if in the West they all believed in reincarnation, they'd be so much better and behave themselves so much better. And he was silent for a minute or two. And then he said, India has got as many thieves and rogues and dishonest people and murderers and so on as anywhere else. And they all believe in reincarnation, it makes no difference at all. I don't think it does. Because the motivation of action doesn't come from your beliefs, it comes from what you are. And again, at the time I said that, it's your nature which comes out. It's the nature of the act and not the apparent superficial system of belief that uh, affects it uh, primarily. Uh, it has some influence, but it's relatively superficial. So these are the various levels. Now, um, according to Plotinus, who adopts this, this one, the Platonic system of reincarnation, um, the element that steers you from life to life, and I missed the quotation of this, was your own choice. 
he said, it's rather like the myth of Ur at the end of the Republic. Remember when uh, all these people who have been famous in life go and choose a new life. <coughs> Odysseus, who's been very famous and had an absolute hell of a time, um, chased all over the globe by, uh, by the, what's it, Neptune, you know, the, the god of the sea and earthquakes and so on. Yeah, Poseidon, yeah. And one thing and another, had a very rough time of it. What he do, does is to choose good bourgeois existence, <laughs> a kind of servitude idol, you might say, uh, because he just he just had enough of this. He doesn't want any more of it. And other people's minds are clouded by their past. They were people who were allowed themselves to be completely drunk with passion in their lives, and they are full of anger, and their minds are clouded. And they seize upon something, and it makes them a very powerful ruler, but then they discover that it's got all sorts of disadvantages, like they're being fated to eat their own children or something. And at that point, said Plato, they blame God, not their own folly. Um, but the guiding principle is the choice. And this is what Plotinus says, uh, that the guiding principle is the choice. It's the way you move. If the choice, the direction of life on the fundamental level is... In, on this vertical level, then it shifts the external level. Because if, on that level, the mind grows and responsibility increases and responsibility begins to be lived as the nature of the human being. Whereas if you go the other way and you grasp externally and seize to yourself, what you do is to destroy your own mind, you predicament yourself. You, you get smaller and smaller and smaller, you draw in, become more compact, uh, become more resistant. And with that kind of course, according to Plotinus, uh, well, he said he spoke of some people, as he called it, betraying themselves. Personally, they rather like trees, and it's a bit of a slumber on trees, but you know, they, they, they can shift out into the animal creation and into, into um, the vegetable creation and so on, according to him. And in, when they get to that stage, they are so trapped by the consequence of their preceding action that they are no longer responsible. They're in a sort of drifting nature. Now, does that answer your question or not? Uh, I think it does. I didn't think it was going to, but I, I think it does. All right, now, I'll, I'll take these two in order. You were next, I think. Mean. Um, because in the Bengal Gita, you have, as you know, about reincarnation. But as I understand it, design gets you ready for the moment when you're really freely to choose transformation in what we would call that which is about number, you know, the, uh, the unlimited reality. And also, I think, that is where the thing we originally came from. We have mysteriously descended into this uh, limited order, and, and, and why we got into it, of course, is a great mystery, but, but, but it is quite clear that but, but the reincarnation is something you go on doing until you're ready to choose freely to come out of it. And, and, and the problem is, what about the demons? Well, the, they're the ones who are not moving towards wanting to get out of it. But the answer is that, but, but, but they, can get, they can get transformed if they're fortunate enough to be killed by God. That's where the demons take it. He didn't want to send anybody out to go hell that way. The demons are not making the kind of progress for English we're talking about. They're going in the opposite direction. But there can come a point where they actually get killed by God. This is a great story in the Vedas about this how a great demon gets killed and it goes to the highest heaven and it's sort of buried all the same. The end of the Ramayana. It's very irritating from 
from their point of view, of course, after Ravana has been killed, you know, um, his wives have been mourning over the dead body. Rama says to him, don't, 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 don't sorrow, he is already in heaven with me. And the same thing happens at the end of the Gita, in the, at the end of Mahabharata, when um, uh, Arjuna goes to the heavenly worlds and he gets a vision of uh, his opponents in the heavenly realm. But yes, okay, fine. Interesting, I thought that was very much what I believed myself when I read this. The last week or so, I'd actually read through the whole of the Gita and I mm. refreshed my memory about all this. I thought, well, that's actually what yes. I there is, there is a, there, is, there is another thing, too, and that is that the awareness of the one gradually growing, sensing that it is there and eventually identifying with it can be the driving force of the whole business. But anyway, can I, can I, can I, can I, sorry, Kevin, I'll come back to you. One person at the back has been trying to ask the question desperately for some time. It's just all around the same point. If your role is to be time or uh, Tamperlin the Great, yeah. and you attune yourself, yeah. and it is your destiny to be Tamperlin the Great, you are you meant to be good or, or are you meant to be good and responsible in earthly terms, or are you meant to just go around and source people with great abandon and sort of Because that is my role, and I've got this incarnational, reincarnational phase, and therefore I. Slaughter everybody. No, I don't. I, I Plotinus would say no. It is, it is not your job to do that. Um, that, that may be a, a part of this play, but you jolly well choose to play it. And if you do it, uh, then you take responsibility for it. But it is, it is a more complicated question there because some of the issues have been raised by you. That is to say, the degree of. Um, identification with the action, at least according to the Gita, and it seems to me to be implied, they've never gone into it in the same way, uh, at least uh, hinted at in, in Plotinus. But no, I think he would say no, you are held responsible for your actions. If you go out and slaughter people left and right, um, run a concentration camp or something, then you take full responsibility for it. And it, the, the Adrastaya principle comes back, you get it in the neck, you may find yourself a prisoner in some future stage, if, you, if that's the way you think. But there's another thing about Caesar in the eighth poem, where Caesar has that still moment, which seems like this sort of tuning to your yeah, yeah. and then crosses the root one, which is Yes, yes. you can, you see, there, there, there can be a nobility on the side of apparent destruction. This is what is always said in the, in the Indian tradition about Ravana, who is this monstrous demon who is, uh, I've even heard described as an embodiment, an incarnation of the destructive aspect of the absolute, because the, the, the force that arises out of that which is beyond number is creative and destructive. It is birth, it is life, it is death. And the one is the other, ultimately, and it depends upon the kind of destruction. But that is not something which normally you would dwell upon, because if from the level of the ego you start dwelling upon that, you become destructive and far from the noble sense. You just become extremely nasty. And if you want to see what happens then, well, look about you. <laughs> Sorry, Kathleen, you were... This is a relevant question, but the... Uh, Modern psychology, or particularly I think union psychology, says the function of, of psychology is to enable people to individuate. Yes. Individuation is the, the, the sort of object. Well, of course, what you've been discussing is the opposite, to get away from the individuation to the 
two to one, but is it perhaps uh, like the, the double triangle of descending and the ascending? What in fact is the purpose of the individuation? Well, the indiv individuationism is the manifest realization of that which is without number. Sorry, I've lost the chalk again. I'm always doing it. But if, if you go back, over there it is, yes. If one goes back to um, the level of the intellectual principle, remember the, the nature of individuation there, this Blakean kind of nature, which you're very familiar, of the individual not being separate, but being inclusive, being the whole, while at the same time being an individual. Well, if you pursue individuation on this level, you um, tend to develop one aspect and you become very much an individual. On this level, you are a kind of super-individual. That is to say, the idea that is embodied in you becomes manifest. It is the individual raised to a much greater power and a much greater glory. There was a quotation in Plotinus about that last, last time, I think it was. I can't remember exactly how it ran. But the, the self is raised to, to a, um, a much fuller glory on this level, and it is no longer separative. Because doesn't Plotinus somewhere say that we come into this world as a punishment and with other things, but also in order to improve things down here? Oh, we have that duty, yes. I mean, that seems to me to be implied in the whole system. I don't know where he, where he actually says that, but, but I, I mentioned this last week, but you, you're going out to this level. Since human beings have responsibility, they have responsibility for this level. And their job is, as I see it, to pull the whole thing back so that this level becomes a translucent dress over this level, which becomes a translucent dress over this and that is that is what you get. I mean, if you think of the sculptors from the Parthenon, in, you know, especially one of those figures, draped, Shuston pointed this out to me, she's good at this story, there's a draped figure from the Parthenon, from one of the pediments of the Parthenon, and it's draped with very, very fine drapery, and although it's all stone, it looks translucent, you can actually see through it, it's so light, it's miraculous. Well, that is the kind of thing. If you get that, then what you get here is what traditionally was known as nature glorified. And there is no reason why it shouldn't be. But the job of glorifying it is human beings. At the moment, we're doing the opposite. So it all turns on human beings, I'm afraid. It really is our responsibility. That was my question. Ah, oh, was it? Yes, I see, yeah. Oh, that was a terribly important that is, that is the answer. But you can't suggest it if you were, if you were saying by, 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 by putting your point of focus into the one, yep. you were in a sense moving away from this plan. No, not, not, set, in not, the yes, um, not uh, fully, because uh, if, you, if you remain on this level and you move into the one, you become aware of yourself as the one, but you become aware of everybody and everything else also as the one, all right? And at that point, this distinction goes. Does that answer it? So it's, it's, uh, but the first movement must be away from the sensory level of your own nature, because it is that which is clouding your vision of what is there. So from that point of view, yes, self-denial, but it's for a growth of the self to something which is quite universal. Christianity is a very incarnational religion. I, I, David, David Jones points that out. Very incarnational. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as it were, commanding us 
to realize on earth the, the heavenly vision. Yes. Uh, Buddhism, of course, is, is going the other way. Yes, I suppose it is. I suppose it probably is true. The balance between the two must surely kept. Well, again and again, Plotinus says that the only reason why you can take this world as not an amazingly, overwhelmingly beautiful the inner world is even more beautiful. No, I've I've been uh, uh, signalled at by Stephen terribly vigorously because I think we've gone ten minutes over time and there's going to be a row from the princely minions who will. Throw it out, and uh, you'll find that poor old Stephen has spent the week in shackles. <laughs> anyway, next next time is going to be the last one. And I'll, if you've got more questions of this kind, come back with them then, okay? And I'll turn around to the business of knowledge and the modern world next week. Yeah.